Welcome to today's edition of Invest Africa Insights, the leading business intelligence service brought to you by Invest Africa. Excellent. Thank you very much, Alex. And uh, good morning slash afternoon, everybody, uh, depending on where you're coming from. Um, by way of a quick introduction, um, I'm a corporate M&A partner with the firm Clyde & Co, uh, based in our East Africa hub in Tanzania, but covering the whole of the region. Um, what we're going to do today, in a minute, I'm just going to hand over to our speakers for a short introduction, and then uh, we're actually going to split the session up into two. Uh, we've got um, we've got sort of 20 minutes or so focused on the obvious uh, immediate challenges associated with COVID-19. Then we'll have the opportunity for um, some questions, uh, followed by a more general session uh, focusing on uh, the continent's healthcare needs. Um, so without, without any further ado, uh, let me hand over uh, to Francis and the rest for an introduction. Great. Hi, everyone. Um, Francis Eberhard. I head up the Africa Division of Speyside Group. We are a global emerging market-focused um, policy, communications, and corporate affairs agency. And um, it's not our only area, but it's by far our, our core area is uh, healthcare. Lovely. Thank you. And Wayne? Hello, good afternoon, good morning, everybody. Um, Wayne Hennessy Barrett, uh, founder and CEO of 4G Capital. Uh, we're building the Neo Bank for Africa, providing small uh, and medium microenterprise uh, businesses in Kenya and Uganda at the moment with working capital microloans, which we blend with enterprise training so that they can grow. Um, and we seek to be the connective tissue to help the economic uh, recovery at this time. Lovely. Thank you. And finally, Tita. Hi everyone, my name is Tita Ovia. I am one of the co-founders and head of growth for a health tech company called Helium Health. Helium Health is a company based in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, our mission is to accelerate Africa's transition using data and technology into a better healthcare system um, by providing a suite of products for providers, payers and patients. Yeah. Lovely, thank you very much. Um, so I think it goes without saying um, the issue at the forefront of uh, everyone's minds at the moment is, of course, the ongoing challenges from COVID. So I think that's where we're going to start. Uh, and in particular, I think asking ourselves the question, you know, what does COVID-19 mean for Africa? I mean, there are obviously some short term issues, challenges, um, you know, ways to approach, but also I think to think about the long term impacts as well. Um, so, so perhaps, um, Tito, would you be able to perhaps kick us off with some thoughts? So, you know, COVID-19 is, is interesting because I feel not just for the African continent, um, but North America, South America, of course, you're going to see unemployment almost immediately, right? Um, you know, I just think that unemployment rates aren't properly documented um, on our continent as they are in the US. I mean, every week you see in the US, the millions of people that file, or every month, millions of people that file for unemployment um, checks. However, we don't have those that data and that information, but we know that it's happening um, because of course, businesses have been shut down um, and there's a lot of uncertainty. So definitely that's happening. Um, and the long-term, unfortunately, what you're going to see is that because people have been let go of their jobs in the past, because of course, 
Um, you know, our government schools don't have efficient ways to be able to communicate school curriculums. Um, it's unfortunately going to push a lot of families that had just entered the middle class back into the lower class and even push some of them even further back and, you know, sort of start the poverty cycle. So you're actually going to see our, you know, poverty numbers actually increase um, within the continent. Um, and that's just something that it's just going to happen, unfortunately, just because of the situation. And of course, a lot of our countries also depend on oil, like my country, Nigeria. So, you know, you can imagine all of a sudden COVID has started affecting price of oil, this completely crash. You're trying to, you know, redo your budgets and things like that. That's going to have a deep economic problem on our countries. No, no, absolutely. And Francis, I don't know if you have anything further to add to that. In particular, I mean, it, it seems to me that it's that it's also quite important to consider the sort of the regional dynamics as well for the continent, because it isn't, you know, we see a lot about, you know, a lot of African recession, but it's not a one size fits all approach. I think. Sorry, Francis, can you? Sorry, Francis, there we can go. You... There we go. Um, there's some sort of a bot that keeps muting me here. Um, I mean, from a regional perspective, it's it's one of the places that I feel perhaps slightly, perhaps slightly naively, but a little bit more optimistic. Um, you know, prior to this crisis, we had huge movement towards a free trade agreement. And although signature of that has been stalled for the meantime, we're actually seeing the mechanics of it really start to work, you know. So we're starting to see this, this inter intercontinental coordination over things like storage and warehousing uh, for, for pharmaceuticals. Um, and I think those kind of moves, certainly in the, I mean, in the short term to deal with issues around food security, to deal with um, moving medical supplies and equipment around the continent more quickly, but also in the long term, uh, to the extent that we're able to cushion ourselves to any extent from the global dynamics of, uh, of this pandemic, and the, the trade wars and their effects that they have on the continent. I do see some optimism on that front, but of course it, it, it's not, it, it's a very strange time to be talking about long and short-term effects because, you know, we haven't hit the healthcare crisis yet. We've hit the economic crisis first. Uh, and that is obviously going to have much longer lasting effects on this continent than it will elsewhere. No, very much agreed. And Wayne, I don't know what what your thoughts are, and in particular whether in the in the context of East Africa, you know, how we expect, you know, both the short and the long term impacts to be played out. I saw something about you know the IMF expecting Kenyan GDP growth to bounce back to more than six percent in 2021. I mean, do we think that's optimistic? Well, it's um. It, it is uh, it's a, it's a situation of two halves, but certainly on, on behalf of the constituents that I rec represent, which is the informal economy, which is an enormous part of, of all of Africa's story, but you know, 80% of, of, of real you know, economic activity in, in most countries, and as Tito so accurately said, largely undocumented, um, and still very excluded. So 
their, their problems um, and their challenges were already pretty stark with a finance gap of 331 billion across Africa, 19 billion in Kenya, and growing as population expansion increases. Um, and so uh, that uh, context also, I think, perhaps to Francis's point, describes uh, or provides a degree of resilience where uh, this is just another shock and the fundamental areas, the foundational areas that they serve of eating and livelihoods and, and community cohesion um, are actually quite strong. And with a younger population, um, I'm cautiously optimistic that um, there will be some, some resilience against the medical effects of this virus, which are still playing out and a lot of the Western countermeasures perhaps need to be revised given uh, the propensity for the virus to fluctuate indoors and in, in, a, in, in a controlled environments rather than outdoors where a lot of the activity is taking place. So without doubt, uh, economic growth has you know, contracted and there will be um, serious implications as that plays out. We know historically emerging markets tend to suffer with, with wider uh, global recessions. Um, so uh, I think um, I, I, I've seen some downward projections from that figure that you cited uh, more recently. So I think 6.5% is most unlikely. I think uh, we're looking to see sort of small single digits, but with, with still amazing fundamentals uh, to be uh, nurtured and supported and pushed forward um, as we come to terms with um, how we manage this particular crisis. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Without discounting the challenge, I think the, the, you know, the, 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 the resilience of communities will be a huge benefit in, in bouncing back. And you know, even when we talk about you know, Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Uganda, for example, all, all delivering GDP growth this year in any event, as predicted, um, you know, it, kind of, it kind of demonstrates that, that resilience. Um, I guess taking the kind of GDP and economic effects aside and, and trying to kind of focus more on the, you know, the, 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 the healthcare needs, um, you know, how is it do we think that we can address the continent's immediate healthcare needs that have arisen as a result of COVID-19? Do, do we think, is, is it just a case of additional funding or, or, or are there other elements that we think need to be looked at? Um, perhaps Francis, if you were able to kick us off on that one. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it goes without saying that that funding is an essential part of it. But I, I do think that I mean, and this really ties back into into the points of the the panel, the other panelists is the existing resilience and capacities that we have developed. Not I mean, people keep referring back to, and I don't want to jump to a conversation point later on, but to lessons learned through you know ebola but um coming from from a south african perspective there's this extraordinary infrastructure that's been developed around the response to hiv so the ability to use community healthcare workers to track and trace to screen um, it's one of those instances where, where we're actually ahead of the world in this. You know, other countries are trying to figure out how to how to get these mechanisms in place. Even the community I live in in Cape Town has been part of that project, and it, it, it's a not it's a response which is the NGO civil society sector, 
linked in very well with the government sector. And the NGOs go into communities ahead of time, do all the, the education required, and get the buy-in of the community to, to um, comply with the regulations, understand the regulations, and help contact trace, which means that we're not having to rely on people arriving in hospital before we know that there's a problem and then try to figure out who they came into contact with, is we're able to pick those, those symptoms up far earlier. And I'm starting to see, I mean, I'm obviously being quite, you know, South Africa specific, but I know, I know that Kenya has make, made an announcement this week that they might start paying voluntary community healthcare workers um, a stipend going forward. And I know Ethiopia has an incredibly strong de decentralized healthcare system. And I think it's beyond the kind of very quick measures we took to close borders, et cetera, early on. It, it's this sort of response, which I think is going to give us some chance. <laughs> In, tackle, in tackling this disease beyond requiring the kind of funding to buy very expensive machinery mm. that, you know, we don't have the diplomatic relations nor the funds to to import in. Um, so, yeah. No, 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 very much agreed. And it's, you know, not, not discounting the usefulness of closing borders and lockdowns, etc. They are a that they're a kind of immediate response to try and slow the outbreak, but they're, you know, and you see this everywhere in the world, it's not the solution, is it? And particularly in the context of the continent. Um, Tito, I, I don't know if you have anything further to add on that point, and in particular, I don't know, um, perhaps anything from the, you know, in the Nigerian context would be great to hear. So, you know, just even piggybacking off Francis has just said, um, you know, it's not, money is, of course, it's essential, you know, and you need it, but you know, money can, you know, you can buy ventilators, buy beds, erect isolation centers overnight. However, though, it can't actually buy you healthcare workers, trained healthcare workers or skilled healthcare workers overnight. You can't buy sort of, you know, a community, um, you know, of, you know, healthcare workers and, you know, that decentralized system that Francis has spoken about overnight. It's something that takes, you know, years, not decades to be able to establish. And the first um, and unfortunately, with Nigeria, that is not, we're not just there yet, um, you know, being able to establish that. So I find that we are struggling. Um, I find at the same time as well, countries like Nigeria, Ghana, um, we also have, you know, what we call the brain drain, right? Which a lot of our amazing talents are, you know, in North America, you know, Europe, um, you know, in proxy, and they're the best at their fields there. So unfortunately, you know, we just don't have enough, I mean, nobody has enough healthcare workers, to be honest, but I feel like yeah. it's even worse in our place that, you know, we are literally almost scrambling. Um, you know, I make the joke that, you know, I have a degree in biomedical sciences, they're going to start calling me to start trying to patients just because we need literally as many hands we can get. And that's something that we're seeing that money just can't buy, unfortunately, you know? Oh, no, no, absolutely. And, you know, just, just just from my experience, it seems to be so important as well, just the process of educating people, getting the information out into the community about what this really is. And that, you know, it isn't, for example, a, you know, a, a, a disease similar to AIDS. It's different. Um, you know, just just letting people understand and understand what measures they can take. And have you seen much of that in Nigeria, sort of people trying to get the message out? 
I think that, you know, of course, whenever a new, you know, virus comes about or there's loss of fever, there's always, and I think this is because of the past, that there's always sort of a, you know, a misunderstanding, I would like to call it, that, you know, people don't really believe it exists. Um, you know, there's a lot of thoughts that, okay, we're doing this because people want to get money. You're hearing a lot of funding going around and you assume that, you know, this is a ploy in which government is, you know, talking about. Um, and I think that that's just because it comes back to education, right? Um, you know, of course, if you had, you know, community healthcare workers that literally their jobs were to just go in and just educate every single day um, and cover different communities about this, then we would be a lot further along. Um, I mean, we have cases in Nigeria where, you know, people actually get violent, you know, and they're like, no, don't come and evacuate me. Don't come and pick yep. me up. Um, you know, I mean, you hear on the news that people are running away from isolation centers just because yep. they assume they're going to be used for experiments. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of misinformation about, um, and that, of course, would help if we had strong community healthcare worker system um, at our backbone. Uh, and, and certainly, Wayne, Wayne, in your perspective, I mean, uh, what's the situation like in East Africa? Uh, and, uh, you know, any suggestions as to how this can be tackled beyond beyond just pure money? Yeah, I'm I'm I've been encouraged by the response of the governments in Kenya and Uganda, which is you know, what I, I can really only speak from with with any kind of competence. Um, it's been measured. It's been decisive, but it's also been quite sympathetic. Uh, to the realities of, of the needs to continue to access food and livelihoods. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, the, the knowledge is still unfolding. So, um, you know, we're, we're very supportive of that. Um, you know, everybody can make a case for money uh, all the time. And there's no, no question that financing and resourcing is, is a critical part of anything. Um, I think what we see, though, in, in the markets where we operate, particularly in the east of Africa, um, that um, we that, have this... Ex we have this extraordinary um, resilience, you know, quite effective decentralized health systems, informal, maybe more than more so than formal, but but lot there's lots going on. Um, but I think a lot of the reason for that ingenuity and that um, fractal approach, um, approach is because uh, it's sitting along quite underdeveloped infrastructure. And so to really get enduring healthcare solutions, we need sanitation access to clean running water, uh, the ability to clean things. So I think, um, you know, the, the, the reality is isolation, social distancing, lockdown, just not practical for where we are in the way that actually not terribly practical in the West or, or, or the Northern Hemisphere, but there are bigger balance sheets to buy out uh, the implications of those policies. So uh, prevention and cleanliness and sanitation um, and there's a lot of you know can do that can happen now. So certainly our company is part of a coalition of um, tech companies and other distributors and vendors. Um, an initiative called uh, Safe Hands Kenya, where we're looking to get uh, hand sanitizers, soap, cleaning agents, detergents to the people in greatest need at, at zero cost. Profit motive has been suspended whilst we use our own physical distribution network as access points for people to come and fill their own bottles with hand sanitizer or to collect soap, which is being donated by, you know, uh, FMCGs and transported by uh, last mile distribution companies. So um, th that's heartening. Um, it's working hand in glove with the government uh, in Kenya, certainly, um, because this is very much a collective effort. And I think it's certainly not a time to try to um, 
push for comparative advantage. Yep, no, 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 is very, very important. No, absolutely. And that sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, so we've just got a couple of minutes before we're going to flip into some initial questions. So perhaps in just one, one, one minute each, um, yeah, one what, minute. what lessons, what lessons have we learned from the uh, previous um, epidemics on the continent? Perhaps Tita, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off. Yes. So one of the things learned, um, you know, from Ebola especially is the need for technology, right? Um, to be able to track things. We haven't quite got that yet with Lassa fever, but the only way I believe we can truly leapfrog our, you know, lack of healthcare workers, um, sort of human capacity issue is really technology. Having some form of technology that's, you know, able to track and trace and give you the accurate data that you need to be able to actually progress and get ahead of the curve. Um, you know, having things like AI-powered predictive analysis, so you know, okay, what is the trend and, you know, what way is, you know, the virus going, disease going in the community. Um, truly, that is the only way for us, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa to be able to overcome this just because we can't match, you know, other countries, you know, when it comes to, you know, healthcare workers or even funding or anything like that. Um, however, though, you know, technology is universal, right? So again, having accurate data, real-time information that allows you to plan and scale, because we also don't have money to just be able to throw at everywhere, right? So again, you're Absolutely. now having more direct Absolutely. Funding. Yeah. Uh, and, and Wayne, lessons learned? Any reflections? I think there's been a lot of um, actually very good learnings which have been captured from um, insights about rapid population control, um, rapid um, uh, civil control measures, um, and that always you know butts up against perceptions of civil liberties. But when you're when you're stopping a highly infectious uh, you know disease, um, those things need to happen and happen very quickly. Um, and so there's, there's been some media coverage actually about, you know, lessons which Africa should be exporting to the West. Um, you know, in the, with the greatest possible respect, there are countries in uh, which, which really ought to know better, which are still allowing people to land from international travel without any form of testing at all at airports. Um, <laughs> Not mentioning any names. <laughs> no, 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 no names. Uh, but, but, you know, that... You know, we, we kind of we kind of got that a couple of years ago. You know, around around these hair parts. So uh, I, I think um, I think actually for me the biggest lesson is one to to be proud of the successes and to export that knowledge with some confidence in, in genuine collaboration, rather than this slightly patronising default setting that Africa is going to be completely trashed by the latest crisis. Um, mm -hmm. This is a very resilient place with a lot of ingenuity, and I, I'd like to see that yeah. conversation a little bit more. No, no, I couldn't agree more. And, and finally, Francis, any lessons learned? I, I think I kind of uh, gave away my, my primary one. Um, but I mean, just to elaborate on it a little bit more, I think that through, and this is very much a Southern African perspective, um, through our lessons with HIV AIDS, with multi-drug resistant uh, TB, um, I th and having a state that has just not got the funds to deal with it at a central level at all. Um, it is just that extraordinary importance of community buy-in, of community leadership leading the initiatives so that um, the, the education is coming from there. And that 
it's been so encouraging to watch the South African government see that as a key component of the response to the to 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 Corona, is to to COVID nineteen is to say that you know we are pouring funding into this. We have a national nerve center which is coordinating all the NGOs in in the country to move into communities first before the the government um, mandated testers come in etc and, and I think that that sort of thing is is an incredibly powerful learner learning mm. to be exported elsewhere no, absolutely and I think you know beyond kind of initial kind of almost kind of gut reactions we are starting to see more um, you know kind of uh, you know African solutions to this problem and I, I think it's just really admirable what, what's happening in, in so many different parts of, of the continent. Um, so I think we're just going to move now very quickly to some initial questions, I think, focused on uh, COVID-19. Um, so to any of the uh, anyone listening, please do submit um, your questions. But I, I think we've got a couple here. Um, so firstly, um, for, for Tito, um, could, could you tell us a bit about um, Helium Series A? Um, was your was the fundraising process affected at all by COVID-19? I have to say it's uh, it's not, we've, we've closed a few things in the last few weeks, but it's not been a great time for deals. <laughs> so it's interesting, right? Because, you know, we've been, we've been saying to ourselves that I'm sure everyone assumes that, you know, we decided last month that we we're going to start raising and then we closed it immediately. But we've actually been raising for months since 2019, actually. Um, and if anybody knows about how long it takes to raise, um, you know, for an African startup, it takes between, you know, 12 to 18 months um, to be able to close your round of funding. So, you know, we did it actually in record time. We started actually in about June of 2019. So we've been on this for quite some time. Um, and I guess you could say that we kind of had foresight, you know, from, I guess, the very beginning when we started this company and, you know, the need for data, the need for technology and healthcare because, you know, every other industry has technology and that's what helped them grow and scale. But unfortunately, everybody sort of forgot about healthcare. So that was sort of our main mission. Um, so yeah, we we just closed, you know, we're very relieved now because it means that we can actually get to the work that we want to get to. Um, mm. We can actually, you know, scale and expand to, you know, other African countries that we want to get to as well. So yeah, it's exciting times. <laughs> No, fantastic. Great to hear that it wasn't derailed by, you know, everything, of course, that's happened in the last couple of months, because that, that's the big worry, I guess, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, we had, I remember towards the end, you know, around like March, um, you know, as we were sort of getting towards the end, you know, a couple of investors that, you know, we found and we really liked and, you know, their impact investors were like, okay, no, we have to, you know, keep in our capital for our current portfolio companies. And we could understand that because, of course, there's mm. uncertainty. Nobody knows. Um, so, you know, we were quite upset because we felt that we were all aligned. But, yeah, it was just they just literally could not do it. Um, but, you know, we'll save them for Series B. <laughs> no, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I have to say I've seen actually, you know, again, surprising resilience. So we've had one deal completely pulled as a result of what's happened in the last couple of months. So that was a um, that was a, a kind of PE investment in Agri in uh, in Tanzania. But everything else, no deal, no one's actually declared material adverse change or or, or actually pulled a transaction, which again suggests to me the, you know, the, the sheer resilience of the markets that we work in, because that's just not the case in almost every other part of the world. Um, 
Okay, great. Just to jump on to um, the, the next question that's come through, and I'll please kind of jump in if you're interested to answer. Uh, are there any providers tracking mental health within West or East Africa? I think really interesting question there because I don't think there's a person on the planet whose mental health hasn't suffered slightly as a result of all of this. Uh, I don't know if anyone in particular, um, Wayne, perhaps if you had a view. Um, it's it's a massive issue. Um, we uh, we partner with a number of of, sort of um, health care colleague companies. Um, but mental health specifically is, is a tricky one. And I think in some ways um, it's a slightly more nascent uh, sphere. I think sometimes mm -hmm. where, where there's more traditional approach to, um, to, to, to personal resilience, um, there's a bit more of a walk to, to accepting uh, the nature of that, possibly inside the older generations. Younger generations, I think, are a lot more literate to it. Um, so certainly as employers, we, 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 we do sort of, um, you know, red, amber, green checks with all of our troops and, you know, do, do wellness check-ins and resilience training and, and stuff like that, which is well received. And we provide that to our clients as well, because um, it, it's nice to know that somebody actually cares about you. Um, and so in terms of regional or systemic tracking, um, I, I, I don't know if that's being terribly well done anywhere in the world, truth be told. Please, France. Please, Francis. I mean, this is a very, very small piece of anecdotal evidence, but Excellent. I know that the, um, the Human Sciences Research Council in South Africa has been running some very widespread surveys, and one of the key metrics that they are tracking is, is mental health uh, responses. So it'll be interesting to see what data comes out of that. But yeah. No, thank you. And, and Tito, I know this is uh, something that, that, you're, that you're quite close to, at least the, uh, the idea of sort of data in the healthcare context. Do you know, is anyone looking at, at uh, mental health, particularly in a West African context? So it's interesting, right? Um, you would think, especially, you know, in Nigeria with how mad everybody is with the traffic and things like that, um, somebody <laughs> would. <laughs> it's like off the scale already. <laughs> Like, you know, somebody really would make it their, their first time job. Um, but, you know, nobody that really comes to mind. Um, you know, I think it's something that even culturally we are still dealing with even accepting in West Africa and making it even okay to talk about, um, you know, and, you know, not sort of having, you know, colloquial terms or saying, oh, it's things like voodoo or whatever. And that's why the person's acting strange. So, you know, I think there's even still just a lot of learning that we have to do about mental health and even just know that, you know, even, even recognize it in the first place that it exists, um, you know, and yeah. So I think that we have a little bit of a long way to go, unfortunately, with that. Um, yeah, it's not really a priority. No, indeed. I mean, it's a, it's an area that, you know, well, I suppose it's when you look at healthcare needs in aggregate, of course, they are, um, you know, they, they, they are very considerable. Um, okay, excellent. Well, we're just going to flip on then to part two, looking at kind of mobilization of healthcare needs beyond um, COVID-19. And uh, just a few targeted questions. Um, so, so, so firstly, Wayne, um, how does the informal sector access healthcare at the moment? Are you able to kind of talk us through this and, uh, you know, because kind of what you're seeing? Mm. Uh, the, the simple answer is it, with, with difficulty, it's a challenge. 
Um, on, only about half of Africa's population have access to, to health insurance of any description, whether it's government, government schemes or, or private, private uh, sector um, policies. Um, and, and the informal uh, economy by, by, by its very definition is, is kind of off-grid. You know, they're not paying uh, tax um, or they're not locked into pay-as-you-earn or national insurance schemes in, in the way that formerly employed people tend to be even when those systems are up and functional. So, so it's very tough. Um, and uh, certainly within, within Kenya, um, it looks like 13% of people are unable to, to, to access care when they need to. Um, and 42% of households will experience some kind of a shock that will really put them under financial strain. So it, it's difficult. Um, so the, the, the way that you access it is you know, nothing particularly novel, but, but the, the availability uh, of those services is, is pretty variable and, and frankly not great uh, for, for the economically disadvantaged. So we, we see really um, the, the growing solution to this problem is, as insurance and microinsurance um, and, and providing affordable solutions and frameworks to get people um, products and services that can figure around their needs rather than the template from uh, the insurance or the healthcare provider to just you know, push their model uh, in, in places where it won't necessarily fit. So just, just in the last month, we partnered with um, a healthcare provider called Chiraco. So we're able to offer all of our 100,000 odd clients um, healthcare insurance very, very affordably, $10 for a year's worth of insurance. That also covers COVID, which is you know, fantastic, fantastic results. Um, and really like to pay tribute to Turaco, our partners, for, for, mm. for putting this package together. Um, and it covers inpatient care and all the rest of it. And it's a sort of enormous, um, you know, reassurance to people who are, are, are really, really vulnerable. Um, but it's, it's the start, of, it's, the, it's the tip of the iceberg. You know, we need more of this. Now, I, I, I mean, that's absolutely fantastic to hear, particularly at that price point. Um, how easy is it going to be, do you think, to, to, to roll that out? And look, I, I think at times, you know, in my experience, you know, people can be a little cynical about insurance products, particularly those aimed at the kind of lower end of the market. It, it, you know, do, do, do you anticipate it being a challenge, kind of just ensuring people have got confidence in what they're buying? Yeah, um, it's it's not a new issue, um, and it's about you know delivery, delivery, and delivery. You know, we yeah. we, we we you know we've been very very careful about who we've worked with, and we've got high confidence in our partners. They've got high confidence in us. You know, we 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 operate um, a hybrid touch tech model anyway. So yes, we're a fintech. Yes, we're building a neobank, mm. but we also have um, relationship offices across Kenya and Uganda. So they can talk and explain and, and feel the client concerns. And of course, they can act as loss adjusters or as um, you know, claims assessors. So you know, if there's a spurious claim, then, then actually we've got line of sight as to how that Good. can get you know, borne out. But then it comes down to when people need to, to activate their policy, that um, it's there and it works. And if there is a bug, we can work together to fix it really, really quickly because now's the time to be taking care of each other. Our, our loan products up until now have always been insured by us. We self-insure. Mm. And so, for example, there's been horrific flooding in Kenya at the moment, really mm. awful. Um, and a large number of our clients have been badly affected. Um, policy activates, loans forgiven. You know, forget about that. Let's get you back on the road. Um, and because we know that we've got track record, we've got traction, you know, our clients speak and word of mouth is extremely powerful. They say, yeah, well, that works. Those guys are delivering. 
um, you know, we've just dropped uh, all of our credit uh, price by 10% um, because people are in serious financial distress. Um, and there aren't that many SME lenders who are still operating. You know, we're mm. still going because, thank God, we've got a model that works. And we've got amazing clients who are super resilient. Um, you know, they've been hurt and, and we've been hurt too. But uh, the only way to get out of this is to work together and to push forward. So, you know, rather than try to, 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 to go for advantage, you know, we're actually being as client-centric as we can be. And we think that that's going to generate the, um, the energy needed so that they can access other providers of financial services. Because, you know, we can't do all this on our own. It needs to be an no. ecosystem play where, where uh, these uh, providers come together and, you know, really work towards mutual benefit. Now, that, that sounds fantastic, particularly, you know, at, at these challenging times. And I'm sure, you know, people will remember how they were treated when, you know, w w during this during this crisis. I think it will really change and affect, you know, organizations, reputations and engagement with, um, you know, with clients. Um, just moving on then um, to Francis. So um, what are we currently seeing in terms of kind of regulatory movement on the healthcare front. I understand it's an area of sort of particular expertise for you. Yeah, we we're doing an enormous amount of money. I mean we do anyway, but it's obviously on steroids at the moment. Um, mm. globally just monitoring regulatory developments for our clients. Um, interestingly what we're seeing in Africa tracks precisely what with what, what, with what we see elsewhere. And it's exactly what you would expect and is needed in the moment. So it's everything on, you know, price controls on PPE, medicines, devices, the use of competition law to um, ensure against price gouging, a lot of emergency and fast track procurement measures. Um, as well as approvals of unlicensed medicines um, and devices, um, expedited trial processes as well um, for vaccines, um, and all of this is, is is pretty much you know envisioned under standard TRIPS law um, exceptions. Um, I think what we just need to keep an eye on, of course, is first of all, you know balancing standard IP law for the which does exist for for some very good reasons um, with uh, with public health emergencies and and one of the ways to do that of course is to be quite clear on timelines and some of the things that we're not seeing in these laws is a lot of clarity about how long these emergency measures are going to last for and then another issue that I've seen raised in South Africa in particular is, there's just incredibly little oversight of these new um, provisions. So there's no reporting requirements um, and, and there's a lot of fear that these kind of emergency procurement provisions can be put towards nefarious purposes. Um, I, I also just wanted to ask, answer a question that I see came through from, a, from one of the audience members. Mm. Is that okay? Um, which yep. was about the reliability of the data that mm. we're seeing coming around, you know, numbers, uh, cases, etc. There are a few places that data has been questioned. Um, you know, in Egypt, it's well known that a couple of journalists have found themselves in jail as a result mm. of questioning results. But I think that 
the reliability issue is more from the volume of testing that's being done. So it's very hard to get a good picture when as little testing um, as is being done. Yeah, with, with so many tests. So um, I'm I'm really happy to send through a um, a data set I found which. Um, compares population size to number of tests administered to to active cases. Mm. That that actually provides an incredibly accurate picture. Um, no, so no. Well, well, I think that's one of the most challenging things, isn't it, about this current about this current um, crisis? Is that you have a disease which is you know largely asymptomatic at times, particularly in younger populations. Um, it's fast moving um, and there just isn't the capacity to test people and mm. you know you have these antibody tests that don't necessarily work and yeah right. it's, uh, you know, they end up probably creating more, more questions than answers so um, exactly. yeah test 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 is the answer and, hopefully and, and as you know as highlighted in my kind of very very quick list of the kind of policy measures that are being introduced you know there is a lack of quality control when you're when you're introducing um, such emergency fast track procurement measures as well. No, indeed. Well, oversight, I think, of all changes to regulation and legislation are, mm. is key. So we don't see a a long term move to a new normal that is unnecessary. I guess if we put yeah. it like that. Um, and then just um, Tito, perhaps uh, just just to flip over to you quickly, if we can. So I understand that so Helium Health are now providing finance for hospitals. What have been the key challenges in rolling out this initiative? Oh yeah, hi, sorry. So it's interesting. Um, you know, we sort of thought about the concept of this product um, what, sometime last year, around August. Um, of course, nobody knew that COVID was going to come and happen. And, you know, the thesis about it is that, you know, especially in Nigeria, hospitals are basically small businesses, right? With only about, you know, 57% of them have never accessed any type of like funding or any type of financing or anything like that. And that's just purely based on that, you know, people just don't understand healthcare, unfortunately, and not again, no data, no information, nothing like that. Um, and because of that, you know, of course, if anybody's going to a bank for a loan or anything like that, the interest rates are already up against them. Um, and sort of, you know, everybody sees healthcare as sort of this, you know, social service that they would call it. Um, however, you know, that's something we wanted to do to be able to provide, you know, of course, financing for these hospitals. However, COVID has now happened and a lot of hospitals have actually shut down. Um, and they've shut down actually just because they know that they don't have the capacity to actually deal with COVID-19 and, you know, you can imagine that they're losing a lot of funding. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right, that hospitals are shutting down during this time, but they really are. They're not opening up um, just because a lot of them are afraid. So you can imagine post-COVID, um, they're going to need some kind of funding. They're going to need some kind of financing to be able to get them you know, equal and get them whole to where they need to be and actually continue serving the communities that they're serving. Because again, we already don't have a robust enough healthcare system. Um, you know, one of the challenges that we've seen is, of course, you know, having this data and this information. Um, so what we do with our electronic health records platform, which is across over 150 hospitals, 
um, is that those hospitals that have actually been live using our software, there is clear data and clear information about how they make their revenue, what specialty it is. Um, you know, I mean, we can go granular and see, okay, is it from your laboratory? What service in the laboratory are they accessing? What's then the demographic of the people accessing those service? So we know if you want to invest, for example, in a mammogram, and, you know, does that demographic, um, you know, that would use the mammogram come to your hospital in the first place? Um, you know, so different things like that for the hospitals. Um, so it makes it a lot more clear. So we're able to do things that, you know, banks haven't been able to do now. Um, and, you know, we're going to do with our financing. So, yeah. And has it been easy to find suitable targets? Because, you know, like you say, healthcare is funny in that it sits, you know, somewhere between being a, you know, a, 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 a business in the normal sense to, of course, being a social service. Uh, as well and uh, you know are you finding that you know decent enough targets that are able to run their businesses enough like a business that you have the confidence that you're going to get paid back so i think that's the beauty of them using our emr and i think that that's why we were of course focusing now on those that use our solution because we can clearly see you know those are running it like a business that you know you can say and you know have proper structures in place um, you know, aren't sort of just taking money directly straight from, you know, the cash register, so to speak, or, you know, letting bills go unpaid and not following them up and people that actually put in rules in place. And, you know, we even know those kind of hospitals when we set them up as well, right? So again, you know, health insurance isn't a very big thing either in Nigeria, but, you know, I'll give an example of hospitals that say, okay, at every single check of point of care, you know, I bill you and you pay. And that's to, you know, make sure that people actually make their payments, right? However, hospitals that are more lax and say, okay, I mean, let them pay when they want to and things like that. You already sort of get that attitude of, you know, how they then treat finances. Um, so, you know, it's a bit of a behavioral thing that, you know, we almost act like consultants, right? When we're setting them up and looking at their process flows. Um, you know, some hospitals, we go to them about, okay, what are your processes? What are your forms? Let's digitize them, things like that. And, you know, they're kind of looking at us like, oh, no, we don't, we don't have anything. So again, that's already an indicator of people that fit in that bucket. Um, but the real thing is actually validating what they want to spend their financing on, I think is important. Um, you know, you can't just say, okay, you want, you know, financing on a new, on a seat MRI machine, but however, though, you know, you've never had the need for one, um, you know, in the community that you serve, it would be much better if you're facing, you know, a different demographic. So, Again, that information we get from our solution really helps us to be able to choose who are the proper targets. No, I, 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 absolutely, and I mean just the identify and identification of you know good target companies and management teams is is critical in investing critical. you know across all, you know all parts of the continent. Um, so, so I think we're almost getting to the point I think where we're going to flip into some further questions. Um, so I just I don't think we've had anything new um, recently. Um, I, I don't know when, but there wasn't anything more you wanted to add on uh, on, on Churiso, was there? Um, or, or... Oh, sorry, Michael. Uh, the audio has gone a bit crazy. I don't know if you can hear me. Um, I think I can hear you now. Great. Okay. So I, I think there was a, a question that came up regarding the, the difference between micro insurance in African markets, maybe compared to elsewhere. Um, 
and uh, I've only reoperated uh, uh, microservices in Africa, so I, I can't really talk about elsewhere, other than to say that where income levels are very low um, and uh, traditional products are configured for you know, quite large regular premiums, which provide for a, a broad sweep of contingencies, um, that model is gonna be very, very hard to access for somebody on two to $5 a day of disposable income. Um, so uh, the, the, the micro targeted uh, unbundled approach where you see uh, greater specificity, but deployed more scalably, and this is where technology becomes incredibly important, um, is, is really the way to go. And so, you know, traditional examples where um, you know, people uh, are aspirational and they do want high standards and they want, do want access to good brands, but they can't afford an enormous bottle of Heinz ketchup, but they can afford a small restaurant-sized sachet. And actually, at volumes, the margins on those things are fantastic. And suddenly, you have real viability and enormous... It's, it's about finding that... If you can... It's, exactly yeah, Find, find exactly the product that. that's right for the market, I guess. Um, no, no, absolutely. And just in the right way. No, no, just sorry. We just got. I know time's running short. We're seeing the uh, quish, the questions come in thick and fast now. Um, so, so um, perhaps Francis, would you mind sharing some views? What do you think the appetite is for the uh, funding of homegrown remedies, such as the supposed cure coming out of Madagascar? Um, I mean, I know it's going through clinical, clinical trials at the moment, but uh, any thoughts? I'm going to be honest and say I've got very few thoughts on that. I mean, <laughs> be nice uh, if it works. Yeah, I mean, of course. And I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts on the fact that I think that, you know, Africa's always been very ripe for um, coming up with low cost and innovative solutions to things. So, you know, in terms of funding homegrown remedies, I'm excited about low-cost ventilators that are coming out of this yes. continent. No, no touch ventilators that have been um, developed recently. Um, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I I've obviously seen the trend of of these mass purchases of, of this herb. Mm. Um, I can't speak to its efficacy at all i hope it is put through the same kind of rigor that that other medicines are um but you know i don't think that we should be too blind to taking an a, an entirely sort of western pharmacological approach necessarily um but yeah i mean a, a, it's not a complete answer but i do think the idea of funding homegrown remedies whether they be in tech or they be in devices, um, it's certainly something to watch going forward. No, absolutely. I guess we keep coming back to that theme, don't we? Both of resilience, but also it's, you know, it's actually finding African solutions to this problems rather than trying to kind of look for a one size fits all approach from the rest of the world. Um, uh, uh, just a, another question that's come through. Um, so given Tito's point about the lack of health workers, um, what role do you see telemedicine slash health playing now and going forwards? Uh, I don't know if anyone wants to chip in on that. I, I mean, one thing I, I would like to say is that's definitely been an incredibly interesting regulatory development. So um, I haven't checked on this in other markets, but 
um, one of the South African government's very first responses um, from a regulatory point of view was to lift a lot of barriers to the provision of tele telemedicine that had been fought against for decades by industry associations. Um, and, and I think that's really exciting. And I think that, you know, I mean, this is moving on to our last question because I know we've got a lot of time, not a lot of time left. But again, this is the advantage is that, you know, Africa's always been able to do this kind of leapfrog um, tech-wise where we figure out ways to, you know, get cheap access via low-cost mobile phones that use very little data. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of movement in that front is, you know, how can we leverage tech um, to provide re remote healthcare? So. Now, and, 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 and Wayne, telemedicine, tech, these are, these are all important elements? Um, yes, I mean, all, all, all communication and access channels. We, we you know, deliver our uh, business training through um, SMSs, micro tweets through social media, uh, YouTube channel, as well as face to face. Um, those are all quite obvious channels also for, um, for, 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 for medical services. But as with training and indeed as with everything else, it all comes down to content and content quality and making sure that you're getting proper services from people like Tito um, rather than, you know, who knows what. Um, you know, because, you know, this is this is a time for confidence and this is a time to get things right and not to stint on quality and doing things properly. No, absolutely. And Tito, I guess it goes without saying tech's going to be an important part of things. And is. Sorry, Tito, have we lost you there for a second? Second. I think, oh no, I'm back here. I was just double clicking on the new button. <laughs> um, so no, tech is, <laughs> tech is definitely um, an important part. And, you know, homegrown tech, I think we've all been touching on this, is an important part um, just because it's just more sustainable. And that's one of the things that we preach all the time that, you know, I know it's great to want to go for all these fancy companies and, you know, the Microsoft and the Oracles and, you know, I'm not bashing them. They're great too. But I'm just saying that, you know, you have to be able to look locally and see, okay, in my local environment, in my community, are there people that can be able to do this and people I can literally go to their office and knock on the door and, you know, they're available to me. Um, you know, one Absolutely. of the trends we saw before actually getting into the market Absolutely. in Nigeria was people importing a lot of tech from different countries and, you know, paying this, these outrageous support charges, um, you know, and they just couldn't maintain it. So they just had to drop the solutions. So, um, yeah, tech is definitely important, but more, just not any tech, sustainable and homegrown tech. Absolutely. Um, well, well, guys, I think we're almost at the end of our allotted hour. Um, so I think before we go, I, I know we've been focusing a lot on these, you know, the, 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 the themes of resilience, you know, African solutions to, you know, to, to, to this, both this crisis, but also, you know, the long term, you know, mobilization of healthcare needs. But just, you know, the last couple of minutes, any, uh, any closing remarks, um, perhaps Francis, if you want to kick us off. <laughs> Sorry, caught me off guard for a second. There. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I think one thing, uh, it's less a closing remark, but just something that needs to be borne in mind um, as we go forward is, you know, particularly with healthcare, affordability is going to be more and more of an issue as we go forward. And I think that's something that really does need some intense innovation is, is clever reimbursement models. Um, to be designed between healthcare companies and governments. And we've never really quite hit that mark in emerging, in emerging markets. And the things that work for developed nations are not working here. Um, and I look forward to a lot of innovation in that space going forward. I, 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 absolutely. And, and Wayne? Yes, just, just really to, to you know, make make the rather obvious point that that access to healthcare is going to be contingent on access to to livelihoods and access to to financial health. Um, and so, you know, we we really need to to keep going and and keep um, you know fighting the financial inclusion battle uh, in order to allow the inclusion for healthcare and other foundational services to take place. Um, and this really is a time for everybody to, to kind of bind tight and push together. There is no circumstance, there's no crisis where the solution is to do less and to hope for the best and batten down the hatches. You know, the only way through is to really get forward, lean in um, and understanding the new risks, because there's always going to be risk. Um, and, and that's where the opportunity is. And this is really a time for sometimes counterintuitive thoughts. And so we, we would really like this to be the the hour and the day of the social enterprise and the social investor. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and finally, Tita. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm excited about a world post-COVID. Um, and I think that because for a lot of, you know, our leaders and our governments, you know, the truth, I mean, the wool has sort of been taken over their eyes about the realities of our healthcare system. Um, there's no hiding anymore. There's no pretending. Um, so I believe that, you know, being able to now see this and actually having to now invest in it because they see how it can literally affect and crumble their economy. Um, you know, I think it's pretty obvious, you know, the saying goes, what health is wealth? And that is truly the case for a lot of our countries. So having to, you know, prevent another situation like this is important to continue investing in healthcare, um, continue getting the data and information they need so they can actually even invest wisely in the first place. So, no, yeah. no, I, I, absolutely. Well, um, I, I think that's it. We've only gone over by one minute, which is very impressive. Um, and um, but guys, thank you so much. I, I think, you know, let, you know, not discounting the challenges of the current crisis. There's lots to be positive and excited about. So, um, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, in six months time, you know, lots to be cracking on with. But thanks again. Thank you so much to Invest Africa. And thanks, of course, to everyone for dialing in. Cheers.